Good morning. As we begin class this morning, many of you know Dennis Kiley, who has been uh, struggling with uh, cancer and is uh, in Atlanta. I haven't gotten an update on him, but he listens to our class every week. So let's, uh, as a way to let him know we miss him, let's all say, hello, Dennis. Hello, Dennis. All right. <laughs> let's begin. Yeah, get well soon. That's right. That's right. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to, to share. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth about your character. May our minds be opened. May our characters be restored. May our fellowship grow in love and friendship. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, Redemption in Romans. And the title this week is Love and Law. Uh, any thoughts come to your mind with that title? Okay, Margaret, who is the A student in our group, okay, says they're one and the same. They're one and the same. And so that was my next question. Do you see a difference between love and law? Is there a difference? No. If not, why not? Too much. She says too much law and not enough love has been preached. You said because law and love are, are God's character. Okay, let's, let's explore and, and press through this this week as we, as we explore this. We look at the second paragraph in our Sabbath lesson. It says, Romans contains no hint that disobedience comes automatically. The Christian needs to be enlightened as to what the requirements are. He or she must desire to obey those requirements. And finally, the Christian should seek the power without which that obedience is impossible. And as I, as I read that paragraph, see, she must, he or she must desire to obey was a phrase that, that stuck out to me. And, and I thought the question, what would give a person a desire to obey? Why would you desire it? Okay, she's, she says love. Love is, yes, and that's one of the factors, love. As we think about people in the world, you look around, the people, maybe family, friends who, who don't know God, and you think... Their lives would be so much better if they would just make a few changes. If they would just understand the way God made things to run. If they would just make some choices to put their lives in harmony. You might say if they would just learn how to obey. You could say that. What, would, what could you say to them that would, would instill a desire? What, what kind of things bring a person who is outside of God's will, outside of obedience, if you want, outside of harmony with his law, what kind of things stimulate desire to come into that obedience? Yes. Experience and trust. Experience and trust. I like that because what was it that brought the prodigal son to a point where he wanted to get back in harmony? Experience, experience right? <laughs> experience. And what was the experience? The school of hard knocks, right? My dad used to say, school of hard knocks, yes. Uh, there's a very simple thing for me. I'm much happier when I'm in that place. She's much happier. So that's part of the experience as well. The, the reality of, of yes... Um, does that mean that, that we've had experience not being in that place? So we can tell the difference between the two. So, so one of the things, experience God's love from him. How about from, from people around us? Have you experienced people who have loved you? Does that have an impact on your life? How about truth? The truth of what obedience results in. The truth of what harmony with God's law. For instance, the, if we want to break it down on a physical level the truth of what regular brushing and flossing will do 
versus the truth of what failure to brush and floss will do, will that truth result in a behavioral change in you? Yes. I think it's a spirit. I said it's my law I've written in their heart, but I think God gives that desire to us. God gives that desire to us, then, then, and I, I wouldn't disagree. And how, what's his means for bringing that desire? Is it magical? Is it mystical? Or is it through the spirit, which is the spirit of truth and love, which is bringing both truth and love to our awareness, leaving us in a position we have to then choose? Okay, I, I see truth. I'm convicted of truth. I see what's healthy. I see what's right. Then don't we have to make a choice? Apply the truth, reject the truth. Yeah. Oh, have you everybody hear that? She says it's seeing the love and truth in connection with God's character. Because we don't see God as somebody who's love, loving and trustworthy, then we may not be willing to apply that. Which brings us to the next point: and why would somebody have a desire to obey? And and you guys, you're so so you know, I guess evolved. Because um, you, did, you haven't mentioned the time-honored method of Christian preaching. Fear. Isn't that the time-honored, proven method of getting people to have a desire to change? We preach sermons that incite fear. Hellfire and brimstone, she says. Hellfire and brimstone. Um, is, that a, is that a motivator for obedience? Well, I guess it depends on who you're dealing with, doesn't it? She said it is a motivator, but it might not be a right one. Is there ever a place to use that method to incite fear? Yes. Exactly, with small children. You know, one time I, I um, was asked to, to do a, a discussion with some 8th grade boys on sex education. <laughs> and why, why waiting until marriage is a good idea. And I, I tried to take the high road of how if you really love the other person, you want to do what's in their best interest and you want to respect them, you want to keep their, their virtue and you wouldn't want to take advantage. And I tried to take the high road in the education and getting no traction whatsoever. <laughs> you could just see there was a glossing over, no, no resonance whatever with this high road. So I pulled out the pictures. <laughs> the, the STD pictures. And you could see the fear level go right up. Okay, fear was working because they were immature. Yeah, you see God thundering at Sinai. Yeah, you see Him using the motivation of fear at various places in the Bible. Yeah, a, a parent who loves their child and the child is too immature will use methods that might incite fear. But what happens? as that child grows into adulthood, if fear is never replaced with a better motive. That's exactly right. They rebel. They rebel. That's exactly right. And, and this is the big problem with much of historic Christianity, that they never give better reasons. They never introduce us to the true God. We always stay afraid. He sits in high on judgment, and he's wrathful, and he's angry because he can't stand sin, and he's going to get... And, you know the sermons. You know the presentations. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. 
When the requirements of God are counted as a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of God's law. You see, there's a, it's not, we're not afraid of what was going to happen to us. It's not self-reference anymore. We actually love the way he's designed things. We love to be in harmony with the way he's made the universe work. Or this is Signs of the Times, J- July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. Get your mind around that idea. Those, those obedient people who do it out of sullen submission because they're required to. It says, such a one, by such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully. And in the love of God, it is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. Have you ever been at that place in your spiritual journey where you had a bunch of rules and you were under obligation to keep them, but you had no real understanding as to why? didn't make any sense other than if, if you didn't do it, you're going to have a recording angel make a notation in your heavenly record books that one day you're going to have to answer. And you're just looking for the loophole to get out of it. Am I the only one who's ever been there? So, if fear of punishment or fear of loss of eternal life or fear of embarrassment or fear of any other remains our motivator to obedience, what happens over time? We become a rebel. If that is the only motivator we ever know. So, as we think about this desire to obey in a healthy way, truth and love, what is it that obstructs our achievement of this this participation with God's methods? What is it that obstructs us? Think about the things in our real life that prevent us from from participating with God in, in, in His way for living. Too busy. Too busy. Distractions. The cares of the world. What about lies? Lies about God, lies about ourselves, all kinds of lies. God, you know, the, we just talked about God being somebody we can't trust. How about we're not good enough? It doesn't, or the lie, there is no victory. There, there, that's, that, what we get is we get pardoned, we don't get victory. So we, we continue to sin up until the day Christ comes because there's no victory, there's only pardon. You see the lie? So, so people don't even expect to live a victorious life because they believe that lie. Um, Misunderstanding the nature of God's law. And we're going to get into more of that into the, into the lesson today. How about habits? Do we ever have habits that we've developed maybe before we come to understand the truth? Before our minds were enlightened? Maybe we had a, a, you know upbringing or, or experiences that never taught us a better way and we've developed habits. Would those be something that could get in the way? What about the discomfort of change? Is change sometimes uncomfortable? Yes. What if, for instance, you've come to the truth that a particular way of a lifestyle, like diet, is, is actually physiologically healthier for you, but it's completely different than the food you were raised to eat? Might that change be uncomfortable? Might the new foods at first not taste good? Hmm. What about the pain of accepting the truth? For instance, let's say... For instance, the idea that living together without being married is not as healthy and doesn't bring the same type of peace as as a a loving marriage would. But to accept that truth means that somebody you admire and look up to 
who's in that circumstance, you'll have to wait. That means they're not, what might that do to my concept of this person that I really like who's in that relationship? What about if we're the one in that relationship? What would accepting that truth require? Change. Change. Hmm. What about stress of relationships if we accept truth that results in family rejection? Might that be an obstruction to making change? How about stress of society if we accept truth and we are threatened with loss of job or even imprisonment? These obstructions. Yeah. So as we think about this desire to, to obey, we, we have to... Yes? Uh, what about the pride of, of admitting that we were wrong? Ah. So, yeah, I'm going to... We say all the time. I'll make that a note right here. Pride, we are wrong. You know, now there's actually a statement with, um, from Ellen White that says that the words are not only expression of the thoughts, but they react, react back on the thoughts, reinforcing them. And once a man has spoken a certain, a certain concept or idea, it often is too proud to go back and retract it. How about a pastor who has preached for 25 or 30 years a particular construct? Um, would it be hard for them to see a truth that would suggest what they've been teaching is not right? Yes. yes. Yeah, so the, the pride. Yeah, I think that's good. Last paragraph on Sabbath's lesson states, one can even argue that because of the added revelation, and get your mind around this if you haven't read it. One can even argue that because of the added revelation after Jesus came, the New Testament requirements are more difficult than what was required in the Old. New Testament believers have been given an example of proper moral behavior in Jesus Christ. Thoughts about that? Do you think it's more difficult now because Jesus has come? Is it, the question is, is it any different than what's in the Old Testament? Is it any different at all? No. Yes. Yes? What's different? Because in the Old Testament, if you kill somebody, you kill somebody. In the New Testament, Jesus says, if you hate in your heart, you kill somebody. Was that different in the Old Testament, or was it still the same? If you hate it in your heart, you still have the same damage to character, and you're still just as much a murderer in character as in the New. So was it really different? Or is their understanding maybe different? So their understanding, but the reality of what happens to us, the reality of how God's laws work in, in nature and character didn't change, did they? Yes. We just see more clearly because Jesus revealed. Is it easier to see when we see more clearly? For instance, if you have... We just look more perfect. So if you have a cancer in, in, internal to yourself in your, in your colon or in your lung somewhere and you don't know it's there... Versus you get a really good MRI scan and you can see the entire thing. Um, it's there either way. Does not knowing it's there make your life easier? Yeah. Oh boy, I've really split the group on that one. Wow, you should think about that one. Not knowing it's there, that makes it go away, right? Helps it get well. Ignorance is bliss, she says. Yes, yes, here. If our focus is on ourselves more than on Christ, is that what he's talking about? The focus is on self more than Christ. We see ourselves as uh, getting less uh, uh, pure or whatever, obedient to the law, because now we've seen Christ and that comparison is bad. Are we focusing too much on ourselves instead of Him? If there's a remedy that will cure your cancer, 
you will get well. Certainty, 100% certainty you'll get well. Which is the worst position to be in? Having the MRI and seeing it or not knowing it's there? Okay, well, with Jesus Christ, isn't there a remedy that fixes it, that will, will heal us? So seeing more clearly our need, our defect, is not a worse position to be in when, when there's a remedy that cures, is it? It's a better position to be in. Yeah, so this is out of uh, Faith and Works, page 50, 52. God requires at this time just what he required of the holy pair in Eden. Perfect obedience to his requirements. His law remains the same in all ages. The great standard of righteousness presented in the Old Testament is not lowered in the New. It is not the work of the gospel to weaken the claims of God's holy law, but to bring men up where they can keep its precepts. It is unsafe to trust to feelings or impressions. These are unreliable guides. So what do you hear? What do you hear here? Does this sound uh, onerous? Does it sound um, uh, oppressive? Discouraging? How do you understand what's being said here? Has there been a change in God's requirements, old and new? No. And what are the requirements? Obedience. Okay, obedience. What is obedience? Let's, let's define that. She says, okay, our A student just said love. Okay. <laughs> and she's right. Love is the requirement. But what, what is biblical obedience? Being in harmony with the law of love. Biblical obedience, the word that's translated in New Testament Greek, is, uh, is, is a, two, a two-part word, uh, hypoacue. Hypo means under or low or humble, and acue means like acoustical, to listen. And biblical obedience is a humble willingness to listen and follow and, and go where the truth leads. So a heart that is willing to be taught, a heart that is willing to accept truth as it comes, a heart that is willing to follow our Savior as he leads us, that's what biblical obedience is. It's not about performance. And there was actually, in, uh, in biblical times, there was a, a servant who had the job description. His name was the hypoacue. And his job was, as the master of the estate would come towards the home, the hypoacue would sit at the gate to the estate. And when he hear the voice of the master, his job was to get up and open the gate. He was to humble, willing, listen, to obey. Now imagine this, this, uh, this individual servant is listening intently, waiting for the voice of the master. And as soon as he hears it, he immediately jumps up. And with all his energy, he goes to open the gate, but the gate has been rusted. And with all of his might, he can't get the gate open. And so he has to wait for the master to to put his weight against the gate as well, for the two of them together to open the gate. Is he a disobedient servant because his performance can't get the gate open? You see, we focus way too much on how well we perform. It's not about performance. It's about how well is our heart desiring to do all that God requires of us. That's that desire talked about in the, in the passage. And so why is the requirements never, never, have they never changed? Because the requirements are the protocols upon which our life is constructed to operate. God built life in harmony with his law of love. And to change that would destroy life. Life can only exist in harmony with God's law of love. Yes. So is that where perfection comes in? A perfect desire to be like Jesus, not my actions, but my desire? 
the word perfection should be erased out of your, your, your nomenclature, your lexicon, and your Bible. And you should replace it with maturity. In the Bible, perfection always means maturity. When it talks about Job, God sitting on his throne in Job chapter 1, he is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There is no one on the earth like him. Because he desired God. No, because he had, because not just through his desire, but because of his desire, he had experienced a growth in maturity and character that he had experienced through the dwelling of the Spirit, an actual transformation where he was mature. He could discern the right from the wrong. He could think for himself. He loved others more than self. Uh, he had the capacity capacity for self-governance, the last fruit of the Spirit. He had actually been changed. And when the Holy Spirit finishes the work in our life, we are different people. We get new drives, new motivations, new attitudes, new perspectives, new capacities through the dwelling of the Spirit. And the Spirit sets us free that we will not be puppets controlled by, by God, but we will be individuals who have been restored to God's original ideal. And so perfection is about perfectly healed, if you want to look at that way. So you've got that cancer, you go to the doctor who's got a cure, do you say, Doc, Doc, hey man, I only want to be 90% well. Or do you want to be perfectly well? The pressure is not on us to get well. The pressure is on God who will restore us. But our responsibility is to trust him and cooperate with him. He does the healing and the fixing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean we have to be... The court has a lot of duties. And a child is fine. He's going to start to do this kind of thing. And perfectly obedient in that... Christian sense, even though that child has grown up, just like a little plant that first pops out, it's perfect in its stage of maturity. Yes, in its stage of maturity. So it's mature for its for its proper stage. Yes, it's right where it needs it to be in its stage of development. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so is it harder today than before the cross? The lesson suggests it might even be harder today since Christ has come. We have His example. I think it's much easier today. I mean, what is it that wins you to trust? God's kindness. Do you trust God more or less because of the cross? Do you have a clear understanding of his nature and character because of the cross? I mean, it's because of the cross that we have a much, much better um, opportunity. All right, Sunday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, for starters, faith is not a substitute for obedience, as if faith somehow nullifies our obligation to obey the Lord. The moral precepts are still in force. They are explained, even amplified in the New Testament, and no indication is given either that it will be easy for the Christian to regulate his or her life by these moral precepts. On the contrary, we're told that at times it could be difficult, for the battle with self and with sin is always hard. Christians are promised divine power and given assurance that victory is possible, but we are still in the world of the enemy and we have to fight many battles against temptation. The good news is that if we fall, if we stumble, we are not cast away, but have a high priest who intercedes in our behalf in heaven." Many, many interesting ideas from this paragraph. Several points to make. First, first one, the very first sentence. Faith is not a substitute for obedience. Very straightforward, very simple. Why? Well, if you're sick, you've gone to the doctor, you have a kind, loving, patient, loving doctor who you trust, you have faith in. And this doctor tells you that you need to change your diet, exercise, cut out the alcohol, and get seven and a half hours of sleep a night. And he explains to you all the reasons for it. If you trust your doctor, if you have faith in your doctor, will your trust and faith be a substitute for actually implementing into your life what he's told you? No. No. Trust and faith is not a substitute for actually doing How about if you're sick and he gives you antibiotics? Will your trust and faith in the doctor be a substitute for taking the antibiotics? No. Okay, so this is not a trick question. 
Faith actually leads to obedience. Because we understand, we, we understand that he's doing what's best for us. We want to partake of it. We want to participate in it. Is this similar to our faith relationship with God? This example of the doctor. It's exactly the same. Our faith and trust in him. We then want to apply to our life those things that he has directed. Now, God does not require us not to understand. God does not require us to do it because um, uh, we're blind. He would love for us to understand every reason. But as a doctor deals with a five-year-old, the five-year-old, the seven-ten-year-old, the fifteen-year-old, and many adults may not understand the reasons the doctor is giving the instructions. But the doctor would be glad for them too. God would love for us to understand more and more of the reasons why, and he does not preclude us from asking and exploring. The limit, when he said to his disciples, I have much, much to tell you, but you cannot handle it. You're not ready. You can't bear it. Any restriction in our understanding of God's methods, purposes, principles, why he asks us to do things, not because God is restrictive and selfish with information. It's because we're in a position we're not ready to understand or comprehend. Okay. Um, What about... The moral precepts are still in force. The moral precepts are still in force. How do you hear that? Okay, it can be heard. She says it can be heard arbitrarily. That God is up there and he's the great cosmic enforcer and he's enforcing laws and he's never going to stop enforcing his laws. It can be heard that way. Is there another way to hear it? And that's the way I think traditionally we've heard statements like that. There is another way that it's true. The character of God is not changed. So they have the laws of respiration changed. Are they still in force? Laws of gravity still in force. The laws upon which God built the universe to run haven't changed. They're the actual protocols, the design template, and they haven't changed. Life is still running on the same principles he built it to run on in the first place, which is, of course, the law of love. And then in the paragraph it ends up with, if we stumble, we are not cast away, but have a high priest who intercedes in our behalf. Explain that to me. What does it mean? What is our high priest interceding to achieve? What does intercession look like? Where and with whom does he intercede? Can we answer those questions? Doesn't he intercede even when we don't stumble? And doesn't he intercede even when we don't stumble? Or is it only when he stumbled, when we stumbled that he's interceding? So what is it? Let's answer the questions. Maybe we should start with the actual Bible text that they reference, which is Hebrews 7.25. And this is what Hebrews 7.25 says. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So question number one. What is he interceding to achieve, according to the text? He's interceding to achieve something. What goal is he? To save us completely. Number one, recognize intercession by our high priest has as its goal to save you and me. Yes. Yeah, and I think he's also interceding to make sure that we don't lose our vision of what God's character is. It's like he's saying, wait, wait, guys, you might think that God is really like this, but I'm interceding to let you know that it's not right. This is what he's really like. Historically, we've had the picture of Jesus pleading to the Father, my blood, my blood. He's suggesting he's the Father's envoy and ambassador to us, saying, hey, this is what the Father's like. So if the goal 
is according to the text, is our salvation, he wants to save completely, would part of our salvation require we come back to a knowledge of God? So you're exactly right. Part of his mission is to reveal truth about God. Yes. Yes. I think John 17 has a picture of Christ interceding for his disciples. And I've read other references that that is a picture of his intercession for us today. Really? Let's take that, because I'm not so sure that's true. Because John 17, if we take it as an example of intercession, then we do have Jesus pleading to his Father to somehow obtain from his Father mercy and grace and intercession and all these other things. He wasn't begging his Father. It's, I see Christ's intercession as simply the God of the universe praying for us and knowing our needs and much as we ask people who's, friends to pray for us. Who's the God of the universe praying to? Jesus praying to? Well, why did he pray at any time then? Ah, because he was human. That was his humanity praying. That was his human brain. That was his human nature. That was his, his own humanity being tempted as he's approaching the cross. That was his human longing who was, who was cut off from his own divine prerogatives. It wasn't God praying there. That was human Jesus praying there. Well, what's he praying? He's praying that they praying would be one stop Right. 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 As a human being. Yes, exactly. Yes. I think the very best example of intercession is the actual life of Jesus and what he was doing, trying to reveal the Father to us. That is exactly what he's still doing now. Okay, so go on the back of the questions. We have a high priest, and it says that he's interceding to save us completely. So to, to figure out this, what is it that is the obstacles or the or the obstacle or obstacles to our salvation. What stands in the way of our salvation? And then you'll have an idea of what it is he's interceding to achieve. One thing has already been said. We have lies. The world, the world is in darkness. Gross darkness covers the people, according to Isaiah 60. We have been lied to about God. We demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And so one thing that stands in, in between us and God are all the distortions and lies and misunderstandings about God that are in our heads. And so one place he intercedes is, as you all are saying, to reveal the truth about God to destroy lies. No question. The is that the only obstacle that's in our way to salvation? The accusations of the devil against us. I wonder if that's really in our way. Do you think the devil's accusations, and we have the picture in Zechariah chapter 3, um, where... Um, where the high priest is standing there and the, and the devil is accusing and, and we have um, the, the angel of the Lord uh, uh, rebuking and, and actually telling, telling his direct, uh, to take off the, the filthy garments and remove the sin from the high priest and put on new garments and so forth. We have a, an example here. When the devil begins accusing, do you think the devil's accusations have any impact on God? Do you think the devil's accusations since the cross have any impact on the rest of the universe? No. Oh, okay. This is where we're going again then. So we're thinking about intercession. Okay, the devil is accusing. We have this, we have this representation of it constantly, yes. But our devil's accusations confusing God. Oh, we need Jesus as our, hev- as our heavenly defense attorney to argue our case to the Father so the Father won't be accused, re- confused by the devil's allegations against us. Well, this is often presented that way, isn't it? The Lord is never confused by the devil's allegations. Never. 
And since the cross, remember Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out or cast down. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all into me. If you can put that together with Ellen White's writing, she says at the cross, all sympathy for Satan in the heavenly universe was gone. No other being would listen to him anymore, and therefore his movements were restricted to earth. Restricted not by a force energy field, but restricted because there is no sympathy. No one will listen to him anymore. So his accusations, are they going to have any weight with the intelligences out in the universe? No. And this is often how we present it in our church. Well, the intelligences in the universe need to, need to have our heavenly high priest argue our case for them as they review the book so they'll know we're safe to come up there. You heard this one? No. I don't think it's a problem either. And I think the evidence will support that. So where is he interceding? Well, you mentioned it over here, Rachel. When the devil makes allegations... Who hears those allegations? Who does it trouble? Yes. It causes us to feel lowly, worthless, guilt-ridden, shameful, unworthy. We doubt our salvation. We doubt God could ever love us. We doubt our church family could accept us. We live in fear of what would happen if people would actually come and know the history of our lives. And so we create theories that when... We confess the blood of Jesus. The record of our sins will be erased. And so in the hereafter, no one will know all the horrible things that we've done. So we can feel safe in the hereafter. Is this really what's happening? No. He's interceding with the truth to destroy the lies about God that wins us to trust. He's also interceding in our hearts and minds to convince us of how much we're loved. That we're the apple of his eye. That God already knows. If, how many were at first church this morning? Okay, in, the, in, the, in the sermon, he talked about the, the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus, who is, was God in, in human flesh, revealing the truth about the Father, says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Okay? God, we're, we're convinced now that the Satan's allegations have no power against us if we've come to unity to Christ. So where is he interceding? He's interceding in our minds with the lies. He's interceding in our minds with the allegations. Where else? And you said it. John, our own selfish nature. James chapter 1 says we're, no one should say God tempts because uh, God cannot be tempted. Each one are drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. He's interceding in our hearts and minds to actually change us, to fix us, to heal us. And look at the scripture and the evidences for this. Uh, many of them. Old Testament sanctuary service tells us that in the old system, where was the law of God kept? In the most holy place. In the new covenant, where is the law of God? I will write my law in your hearts and minds. In the old system, the blood of the sacrifice was spread all through the system depending on what was happening, but it was all over the system the blood was taken. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Where is he telling us the blood gets applied? Internal to us. He's telling us it's a transformation in us. What about the the candlestick in in the old system? The candlestick in the old system represented Christ. Solid gold candlestick. But we are the branches. He's the vine. We're the branches. And twice a day, the high priest, and only the high priest, would do something. What would he do? Morning and evening. Trim the wicks. Trim the wicks. What's this symbolic of? That every day we are to be in such union with Christ that he comes to our hearts and minds and, and continues to work in us so that we will shine brighter and brighter and brighter for him as he trims away the old, the ugly, the distortions, the, the lies, the character defects. That's what it's talking about. So he's interceding in our hearts and minds. What about the parable of the wedding guests? 
the parable of the, of the great feast. When the, when the, uh, where did the Lord of the, of the feast intercede or intervene? Was it when, with some type of magical eye equipment so the, so the uh, father at the feast can't see the guest? Or was it to give the guest garments to wear? Where is he, where is he working? He's giving gar, gar, garments to the guests. We are the guests. He's working to heal us, restore us. The garment is the character. He's working to reproduce it within us. That's where he's interceding. Or what about Malachi chapter 3, when it says the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, and he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, and he will cleanse the Levites, the, the priesthood of believers. He's interceding to actually fix, heal, and cleanse us. So this is what intercession is. Next paragraph in our lesson asks us to read Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. This is the NIV. It says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The King James says, this is your reasonable service. And the Darby says, this is your, this, this is your intelligent service. So I guess the question is, what does it mean to be spiritual? But the Greek translated as spiritual in the NIV, as reasonable in um, the King James, and as logical in, excuse me, as intelligent in the Darby, is the Greek word logikos, which is logical. <laughs> That's where we get the word logical. That's the Greek word. And so the question is, can a person be spiritual without being logical and reasonable? And you'll hear that argued. I'm going to tell you, it is common in Christian thought that to be spiritual, you, you don't use reason. We leave reason at the door. What does it mean to be sealed of God? Well, this is out of faith I live by. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not a seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as the people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come indeed. It has already begun. So, with that in mind, I want to see if I can help you understand the difference between intellectually settled and spiritually settled. Intellectually settled and spiritually settled. How many of you have reviewed the evidences that smoking is unhealthy and are intellectually settled on that point? So no amount of tobacco company graphs, charts, or statistics are going to convince you and shake you out of your settled settlement on that. Are you all settled on that intellectually? How many of you have also made choices such that you have internalized that into the person that you are, that you identify yourself as a non-smoker, so that you won't be shaken out of it behaviorally either? That's spiritually settled. Now, how many of you know people who smoke? Anybody know anyone who smokes? And how many of them know intellectually that smoking is harmful. <laughs> this is what it means to be intellectually settled, but not spiritually settled. They know the truth, but it hasn't become part of their life such that they live the truth and can't be shaken out of it. And then I actually have the rare patient, I've had a couple, who actually tell me they believe that cigarette smoke helps them breathe better. They're neither intellectually nor spiritually settled. Does that make sense? Okay, when it comes to God's kingdom, this is what he wants to, uh, for us to understand it intellectually, but to also live it. It becomes part of our hearts and characters, law written on the heart and mind, that we cannot be shaken from it because we are so settled in the reality. And think about how confident you are on smoking. I mean, you know you're not going to be shaken out of that. 
That's where God wants us to be when it comes to the principles of his kingdom. So is it reasonable and logical for a person to present themselves to God in such a way that they experience this transformation of character? And isn't that spiritual? So you see the connection of it all. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Second paragraph states in Tuesday's lesson, the concept, the principle of government is God-ordained. Human beings need to live in a community with rules and regulations and standards. Hmm. Is it true that we need a community of rules, regulations, and standards now in a world of sin? Yes. Is it true that we will need a, a universe of rules, regulations, and standards once all is made new? Will they? She says the rules will still be in existence. Does a child need a rule to brush their teeth? A rule. Set by the parent. Brush your teeth. Consequence if you don't. Does a child need that? Yes. But when the child grows up, do you still need the rule? Why is the, okay? Why was the rule given? And the principle is a second law of thermodynamics, which state that things tend toward disorder, and if you don't put energy into a system, it will decay. Right? And it's that law. And you can test it, walk away from your home, and don't do anything to it for 20 years, and come back and see if it's still in the same pristine condition as when you left. It will decay over time. Second law of thermodynamics. So because of that law, we understand that. If we don't put energy in and brush and floss, our teeth will decay. So the kid doesn't understand that law, doesn't have that law as part of their heart and mind. They need a rule. When we grow up and we understand the reasons and the law becomes part of who we are, we actually live in harmony with it because we want to freely. Do we still need the rule? Is the rule there or is the law there? Okay, she says, what's the difference? Well, um, if a child decides to break mama's rule and not brush their teeth. What's the primary concern of the child? Oh no, my teeth are now going to decay or mommy's going to be mad. And so what's the primary intervention? If mommy's going to be mad, we need to do something to appease mommy. So I'll pick flowers or draw a picture so mommy won't be mad. I'm not going to brush my teeth. I'll pick flowers, draw a picture because I'm focused on rules. This is Christianity. What I just described is Christianity. We've got rules. God gave them. You broke them. Primary issue, God's going to be mad. I know what we'll do. We'll appease him. How can we appease him? We don't have anything to offer him. I know when he sends his son, we'll kill his son, give him his son's blood. He'll be happy. It's sick. This is what's traditionally taught. Is it not? And it's called penal substitution. There's something twisted with it. What happens when we do it because and it becomes a habit? Yes, it becomes... Is a habit... An intellectual thing, or is it just something that's ingrained in our brain that we can't... Well, I guess it can be either or, because you can develop a habit by intellectual choice and agreement, or you can develop a habit by um, bad, um, bad examples and bad behavior. So habits can be either healthy habits or unhealthy habits. They can be habits that are ingrained or taught because of uh, unhealthy experiences. They can be purposely, hey, I love this, I want to do it, and I do it over time, and after we do it over time, you don't even think about doing it. It's just part of who you are. Can be either habits. So this could be part of the problem. The 
sin problem. We, we, it's a visual thing. We do have, no, we mentioned that earlier. Yes, we have habits to it. There's no question. Yes. Yes, Mount of Blessings says that the idea that there was a fall to the unfallen angels of heaven came as a great surprise. The heaven is not. Mountain Blessing, page 109. There it is. Yeah. But in heaven, the servant is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity. Listen to this. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience is to them no drudgery. Love for God makes the service a joy. So in every soul wherein, wherein Christ, the hope of glory dwells, his words are re-echoed. I delight to do thy will, O oh my God, thy law is within my heart. Do we need a rule to brush our teeth when it's in our heart to do so? See, I see rules as external. I see rules as external. I see laws as principles upon which the rules were created to instruct us. Would you say that the law never changes, but rules can? Yeah, she says, would you say the law never changes, but rules can? God's law never changes. Rules and how they're applied can change from time and place. Think about the rules we create as parents. They're always, hopefully, if you're loving parents, the rules you gave your kids were always predicated on some principle behind it for their well-being, their health. Isn't that true? As they grew, did the rules change? Did the principles ever change? No. No. Yeah. Um, How about this? Why then have there been so many rules in in religion and Christianity? And why do we end up focusing so much on the rules and the law keeping and the behavior? Listen to this. Thought amount of blessing, page 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. All of this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart, and with it perishes love for his fellow men. A system of human invention with its multitudinous exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Wow. Have you ever experienced church like that? All too often. All too often. Why? Why does it get that way? Because we set up rules and regulations rather than coming to know God and experiencing His presence who puts His law in the heart. Yeah. Do you think we're going to have the written law, written law in heaven? No. Yeah, that's the rules and regulations as I see it. Um, Paul evidently didn't either. This is 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Tell me if we can, we can draw that conclusion from this. This is Paul speaking. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous but for the lawbreakers and rebels and ungodly and sinful and unholy and irreligious and for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. Does it sound like in heaven we're going to have all those kinds of people? We're going to need the written law. 
No, does that mean the law is done away with? Of course not. It's just where it was originally meant to be. You understand, God never intended his law to be on stone. It was always intended to be written on the fleshly tablets of his intelligent creatures as the guiding principles for which we live our lives by. It was only put on stone when it was no longer in our hearts and we didn't even know it. How sad a circumstance. Imagine, you've got a first grader, six years of age, starting school for the first day. You pack his lunch, you send him out the door, and as he leaves, you give him a little kiss, and you say, oh, and be sure, don't murder anyone at class today. I mean, if you had to tell your child that, I mean, tell them, really. Wouldn't that be sad? Notice what God had to do. He had to put it in stone. Thou shalt not murder. Why did he have to put it in stone? They didn't know. They didn't know you weren't supposed to. And all the others as well. So the, the law is written on the heart again. Wednesday's lesson. It says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. How are we to understand this text? Does it mean that if we love, we have no obligation then to obey the law of God? What is the inherent fallacy and false assumption in the question? Oh, exactly. The, 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 the fallacy is that there are two different things between the law of love and the law. Do you see it? So is there any other law in God's universe than God's law of love? Any other law? The Ten Commandments? Well, they're an expression of the law of love. That's why the scripture says over and over again that love is fulfillment of the law. Yeah. Desire of Ages, page 21. Ellen White describes that uh, all lesser representations we turn away from when we see God in Christ. And she goes, uh, in these words, speaking about, I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. She says, in these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things are uh, Christ received from God. So in the courts of heaven... In his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joy and serve as a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. God is constantly, this is Mystery of Healing, page 416. God is constantly employed in upholding and using as his servants the things that he has made. He works through the laws of nature, using them as his instruments. They are not self-acting. Nature in her work testifies of the intelligent presence and active agency of a being who moves in all things according to his will. Or this one, I think you'll find this interesting. This is out of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 114. Many teach that matter possesses vital power. That certain properties are imparted to matter, and it is then left to act through its own inherent energy, and that the operations of nature are conducted in harmony with fixed laws with which God himself cannot interfere. This is false science, and is not sustained by the word of God. Nature is the servant of her creator. God does not annul his laws or work contrary to them but he is, const- he is continually using them as his instruments. Nature testifies of an intelligence, a presence of an active energy that works in and through her laws. There is in nature the continuing working of father and son. 
And then the last I want to read to you is, is the very next page, page of Proverbs 115. But his energy is still exerted in upholding the object of his creation. It is not because the mechanism that has once been set in motion continues to act by its own inherent energy that the pulse beats and the breath follows breath, but every breath, every pulsation of the heart is an evidence of the all-pervading care of him who, in whom we live and move and have our being. What do you all think about that? You see, all these laws of nature that we use as metaphors, as we've talked about, law of respiration, laws of nutrition, laws of hydration, all these types of things, they're expressions of God's character. This is how he built things to run. And through him, through these laws, he continues to disperse energy from his own being that sustains and upholds all things. When we understand then, well, why is things so chaotic on earth? Why are things so chaotic on earth today? Is God... Is God's presence on earth as he would have it be, as he designed it to be? Or is the earth veiled from the fullness of God's presence? This is a dark, dark world. Yes, God's presence is veiled. Where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? We are the dwelling place. So what happens to God's presence on earth as more and more hearts and minds shut the door to the Holy Spirit? No, I don't want you in my heart. No, I don't want you in my heart. And harden the heart against God. What happens to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth. And as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth, is he working as fully through his laws? Or the laws become less and less, shall we say, regulated. And so we get tornadoes, and we get hurricanes, and we get all this catastrophe. We get animals eating animals and all these other things that are outside of God's law because another principle is at work on planet earth that Paul talks about, the law of sin and death, or he says in Romans 8 that all nature groans under the weight of sin. And so we have an antagonistic principle here, working against God's own character in nature. And, and as you put these pieces together, you will get some insight as to what's, what's happening to the earth right now and what's going to happen regarding the seven last plagues. As hearts harden further and further and further, the Holy Spirit is withdrawn more and more and more. And guess who gets more and more freedom to operate? And his methods become more and more seen. Ellen White actually says, I didn't bring the quote with me, um, but she actually says that she saw that the plagues of God did not come out directly from him, but in this way. Those who insist in rebelling against him, that reject his mercies and and pleadings and so forth and so on, and harden the hearts against him, he eventually does not continue to have his agencies watch over and protect them. He gives them the freedom. And then Satan has power over land and sea and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and and, and, and tempests and stuff will come out from Satan's power as he is no longer restrained by God's presence. That's how the plagues come. Yes? So, getting back to this big umbrella of the law, can we say the laws of nature, the physical laws, and laws of health, and laws of uh, liberty, and giving, and all those things fit under this great umbrella of God? Absolutely. 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 And he does not violate them. So, as a physician, all of us know who practice medicine that we don't heal people. God heals people. We do things that try to put work in harmony with his principles and, and try to... Uh, but it's ultimately that the life-sustaining energy doesn't come from the physician. It comes from God. But yet we call bad things acts of God. She said, yes, this is how distorted we are, Ben says, that we call the bad things acts of God. You check your insurance policy. Yeah, yeah they should be called acts of Satan. Yeah. 
And then I, I wanted to, to close up with you um, in Thursday's lesson, Romans chapter 13, verse 11. It says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. Is it time for us to wake up from our slumber? What would that mean? What does that mean, wake up from our slumber? What does it mean? How do we wake up? How do we wake up from a slumber? How do we help people wake up? To begin seeing things as they are. Is there any suggestions? I'm serious. Any, anything we can do to help wake up our church? Light wakes us up. Light wakes us up. Oh, and we are to be lights, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, I know in the morning and the, dawn, the sun comes up, does, you're sleeping, does it wake you up? Yeah. The son of righteousness, Malachi, is rising with healing in his rays. And, and we are to be lights in this world. So maybe the way we wake things up is by ever clearer presentations of the truth about God, his character, his government, the reality of of what's happening on this planet right now. And our role in that reality will wake people up. Amen. And you know, as we do that, there will be people who don't like the light, and they'll try to put the light out. Didn't they, didn't they extinguish the, the, the Christ is a light that lightens all men, and they didn't like it, they, and they put it out. They killed him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any questions, comments, as we wrap up today? <coughs> In Monday's lesson, and I skipped Monday to come back to it, it's talking, yes, oh yes. When at the beginning, you talked about habits of mind, and I just thought, that's what you deal with, is habits of mind, and I wonder if you could talk about practical way of habits of mind get changed. Uh, that's a good question. How many read my blog I put up yesterday? Anybody? Yeah, the blog I put up yesterday was about addictions and whether conversion changes our brain. And I put up some new science about how our, our experiences, our, our behaviors actually change brain structure and, and the gene instructions that go to brain. And I, I put those, it's actually, and then I, and, I, and I wove in the scripture promises that tells us that's going to happen. And so uh, part of the, the way we change is, first off, we have to have a desire to change. We have to then come to a knowledge of what our condition is and, a, and truth of a better way. I think real habit change only happens truly. I mean, real true character change happens only in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, changing. And I believe when that happens, there's, there's not just neural circuitry change, change but there's actually changes in, um, in uh, I don't know how technical to get, but acetylization of histones and methylization of DNA, uh, DNA strands that actually alter um, Chromatin structure and uh, and neural circuits are are really really changed by this, um, and I, I think there's strong evidence in science now that this is happening. And we are fina- and Ellen White, of course, promised it. And I, I put some of the quotes in the in the blog where she said this would happen and that we would pass these things along to our children. And now the science is showing that's exactly what's happening. So, all right, let's close with prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, we are just amazed at how awesome you are and how, how when we, we finally grasp a truth, how much sense it makes. Um, we pray that you will give us the ability to articulate the truth of your kingdom more effectively. That as we meet people who are stuck in, in certain constructs that obstruct their ability to see you clearly, that we can love them, we can be patient with them, and we can uh, 
have the insight to speak to them in ways that will will break through the barriers of their own biases and preconceived ideas, and that and that uh, through the, the presence of your Spirit, we can awaken our church, and that our church will come alive to do its final day mission of lighting the world with the truth about your character, so that we will see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm.